on SAFM. Officially, it's 16 May 2016. It's 13 minutes past eight. Good evening, fellow South Africans. My name is Songa Zomabekwe. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us here on SAFM, The Viewpoint, always leading the conversation. And what little I said about that uh, Freddie Blom, who turned 115 last week on Wednesday, on the 8th of May, that was. We were supposed to be joined by him, but unfortunately, as these things do happen for people of his age, he fell asleep before we could actually have a conversation with him on there, live on SAFM. Unfortunately, we also cannot wake him up, so that's as good as it gets for now. But somebody who is awake in the Western Cape and on hold in the cold, Professor Tulima Donsela. Dumela Meli guy. <laughs> social justice in south africa is it something we take for granted hence we do not strive for its success as much as we should and when compared to other parts of africa how do we fare as a nation are we the worst violators of social rights and what can our inequality levels tell us about the pace of our social justice these are some heavy questions and this is some of the thing or these are some of the questions you're answering now as the chair of social justice at the university of stellenbosch professor madon Prof. Madonsela, are you there? Yes. You're asking whether we are not doing enough in South Africans on social justice. Correct. What is our outlook in terms of our social justice in South Africa? It's a 25-year project that's been going on now in the advent of the Constitution and all the many laws that have been enacted pursuant to giving effect to the legislative, I mean, to the constitutional dictates and obligations. Are we doing enough? No, we're not. I would start by saying today is better than yesterday, but it could be better. We have been declared by our our own statistics, South Africa and the World Bank is the most unequal nation in the whole world. Poverty, as we speak, is at 55.5% across all groups. Among blacks, like me, of African descent, poverty is at 64.2%. Among colors, I think it's at about 38%. Among whites, 1%. And you can see in the pattern there of historical disadvantage. Unemployment was announced yesterday as having stayed at about 27% and even grown by a percentage point to uh, about 27.6%. And that's a conservative figure? That's a conservative peak figure. Um, youth unemployment is at 50%. If you add the needs, which is not in employment, education, and training, then youth unemployment is said to be at about 70%. The conservative figure comes from the fact that with unemployment, for whatever strange reason, you are said to be unemployed if you have been looking for a job in within a particular period of time. If mm. you have given up on looking for a job, then you are not unemployed. And that's a weird definition of unemployment. And the, But just to be honest with ourselves, we are sitting on a time bomb because it means that um, when you meet young people, roughly uh, every three out of four young people are unemployed. And um, among black people, every two out of three people you will meet are poor. And that's not sustainable 
We've had extreme problems of hunger and extreme problems of anger. That hunger follows poor people right into institutions of learning. Student hunger is a reality in all universities. My university, Stellenbosch, has moved for food, for example, as a response to that. Um, But we need a national thing. Is it because nothing has been done? I would say a lot has been done, but there are three problems that I see. One is we made it government's problem. After World War II and Europe needing to be rehabilitated, it wasn't left to European governments to end poverty. Had it been left to governments, it wouldn't have been achieved. It was always understood that poverty operates exponentially and therefore we needed to break it back to be able to deal with it. So that's problem number one, that it's, it needs to cease to be a government problem. The second problem is corruption and policy dissonance, where wrong policies will be chosen because the policies are influenced by a group that wants to benefit from that policy. For example, we had an equality act that had chapter five that needed to be implemented to advance everyone. A collusion between black elite and historically advantaged froze the equality act and came sporadically with BEE. And yes, BEE has made a few billionaires and millionaires. Too few. What expense? Too few. Few because, but that was a strategy, and it was a parochial strategy that get both a black middle class. But you can't have a few whites um, lift a whole lot of blacks. I mean, because that kind of system of a few lifting a lot works when there's proportionality between the few that are rich and the many that have to be lifted in a country of. Uh, the minority oppressing the majority, it was never going to work. So BE was misguided. The concept itself is a good concept, but the way it was conceived was found to fail. How do we Um, redress it? How do we change the failures of BE? We don't obviously want to throw the baby out of the bathwater, but there's clearly something wrong with it because it has created a black middle class that is almost negligible by large, but it has created an elitist type of outcome, if you will. Well, the way forward requires business to join hands with government, give up certain opportunities, and to create other opportunities. The BAE was mostly about investing in existing big companies so that they can advance smaller companies. So that was one of its mistakes. Uh, If you look at the National Development Plan, it's looking at investing in small business and creating small businesses. Both countries that are successful have most of the jobs, sometimes up to 80% of the jobs coming from small businesses. Our National Development Plan expects most of the jobs we want created to come from small businesses. It would mean that government should revisit the way of advancing small businesses, historically disadvantaged small businesses, instead of supporting them through big business to support them directly. But we still need big business. As I said, it should be all hands on deck. Nobody wants to live 
in this messed up situation where there's so much hunger and anger, which people refer to as hunger. So it's all hands on deck, reviewing the policy. From our side, we've come up with a with a process that is looking at two specific things. One is every time you draft a policy, use statistics or use data, disaggregated data, to look at how is it likely to impact on differently situated people. Will it exacerbate their poverty? Will it exacerbate their exclusion? Or will it increase exclusion? Uh, inclusion and, and therefore it would mean everything mm. we do will have to be data influenced and using some of the predictive data analytics to do some of the work. It doesn't mean you don't do qualitative work. It just means you enrich your planning process with looking at at the end of this. If you're saying, for example, you want to create jobs, where will those jobs go to? We have, 3, 000, we have 4,392 municipalities. If I'm talking to you now, I said poverty is at about 27% across the country, and perhaps youth unemployment officially is at 50%. In some of these municipal wards, unemployment is at 100%. So part of our planning will have to look at everyone. And when we say leave no one behind, we should mean it literally. We should send an army of development people to all wards. That's what China has done. China has announced that it will end poverty by 2020, not even 2030, which is the aim of the rest of the world. We're in conversation with Professor Tuli Matonzela, and everybody knows her as the most recent public protector serving her seven-year term. We're in conversation with her, talking about all things to do with her work as an advocate, her work as well as a constitutional lawyer and administrative lawyer, and she has since gone back to that realm as the chair of social justice at the University of Stellenbosch, but more importantly, her work as advocate Tuli Matonzela in the public protector space. We're taking your calls on 891 Sorry, I beg your pardon. 891 Remember, we still have that issue with the initial studios that we use, so we have to take calls on 891 We're taking WhatsApp texts as well on 0614-104-107 as well. So please do give us a call, tell us what you think, and let's have a conversation with Advocate Tulima Doncella, Professor Tulima Doncella. We'll be back right after this. SFM, leading the conversation. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songhezomabete on SAFM. Absolutely, Songhezomabete here on SAFM. We're taking your call, so please, the lines are open. 891 WhatsApp voice text 614 My name is Songhezomabete. My guest this evening is somebody who needs very little introduction, if any, advocate Tulima Donsela, Professor Tulima Donsela, former public protector of the Great Republic of South Africa, named Time 100's, Time 100's, most influential person in 2014, Forbes Africa Person of the Year in 2016, one of the drafters of the Constitution. When you talk about forefathers and foremothers, think Advocate Tulima Donsela. Advocate Madonsela, let's talk about the constitutional obligations, particularly as it pertains to Chapter 2 of the Bill of Rights, because that's where all of these social rights, if you will, are embedded, particularly your Section 27s, health care, food, water, your Section 28, best interests of the child, Section 29, Education, Section 26, Housing, Section 25, Property. Our outcomes in all of these things and the jurisprudence that has come from the Constitutional Court and other um, spaces where this ought to have been developed is sound. 
and the NGOs that support that. But the outcomes, lived experience for a majority of South Africans, we still compare very poorly. That's true. Having a constitution that clearly spells out basic entitlements of the people has been one of the great beacons of hope in this country. Because through lawfare or using the courts to fight political battles, we have moved in one way or another. But also government has also used the constitution to a certain extent as a lodestar. That's why we have the biggest welfare system in this country, uh, which um, even countries around us leverage that welfare system for themselves when they can. I would say that we need to move beyond welfare to development. Yes. Because part of the problem is we put a lot of money into the welfare thing. In fact, the largest cheer during the State of the Nation Assembly is how much are we spending on grants. Social we grants. Need, yes, we need to look at how do we translate those grants into empowerment initiatives that empower our people to fend for themselves. Because I need people, and we're working at Emanzimele now, it doesn't matter how old they are, they want to work for themselves, but there aren't enough development initiatives that are helping them to start and run their own businesses, to run their own gardens. Um, for example, one community I worked with, but I won't mention what is its name, they wanted some development support. They wanted a development hub, a, an innovation center and a development hub, which the whole community could come there for different reasons, for innovation, for ICT things, etc. They also wanted support with the garden. They were given a stadium and toilet. Now, if you're looking at leveraging those things for community upliftment, it's a wrong investment. That's why when I speak to people in local government, I say, let's stop thinking about service delivery because we'll deliver a service for the sake of a service. Let's think about development facilitation. So mm. that when you have delivered a service, ask yourself, in yes. what way will life be better tomorrow when I leave this village because I've delivered a service? That takes us to the discussion about public spend that takes us to the discussion and the obligations imposed by Section 217. Before I do that, I beg your pardon, Professor, there's an urgent message here saying, Nsika, Mr. Jazzman Mflungu is celebrating his 35th birthday and how nice it would be for Professor Madonsela to wish my husband a happy birthday. These are the things we have to deal with, unfortunately, from time to time. So, Professor Madonsela, the name is Nsika, the surname is Mflungu, and apparently you have to say happy birthday to him. Well, Nsika, Mflungu, Happy birthday. May it be the best you've ever heard and bring joy for the rest of your life. Thank you so much. You don't want to say more because you're going to give him a big hit. Let's talk about Section 217, Professor Madonsela. Public procurement. It is, in my view, the gateways to the freedoms that this country could and should enjoy. Because at its heart and its most basic form, public procurement is about delivering state goods, services, construction works, using public funds for the public benefit. Unfortunately, as many of these inquiries tell us, the opposite is quite true. Your work in this regard as a public protector has told you pretty much the opposite as well. Absolutely. Public procurement is in its 
an extremely important pillar of government uh, when it comes to development. There are two things that I would say the president and his team need to look at when it comes to public procurement. One is to overhaul the public procurement regulatory framework because it's so fragmented in that most of the important details are in in guidelines, regulations, etc. And I think we need to lift some of those and, and pull them into the law. So that's the first thing. The second one is I aim to have a conversation around development-oriented public procurement. Mm. Because we, we lose money in two ways in public procurement. One is procuring things we don't need. So it doesn't matter whether we followed all of the procedures. Uh, it doesn't matter. We're procuring things that are not in line with Section 237, which says com- constitutional obligations Must should be, fulfilled. be given priority. For example, delay, yeah. you are a province that has children learning without death. It would be interesting if those children that are learning without desk, who are learning in a mud heart, took you to court as mm. government for procuring tablets. Prioritization. They, yes, so for prioritizing tablets when they are living in stone age and you are skyrocketing others into the fourth industrial revolution. I suspect a court will rule in favor of these kids. So, but part of the procurement is because it's vendor initiated. You meet a vendor who says you need this and you start thinking you need it without having a very clear vision of what does problem solved mean for education. Prof, you're talking about planning now. You're talking about the South African enterprise not sufficiently geared towards planning and having a fidelity to those plans. Exactly. President Nelson Mandela was very clear to us Make sure in everything you do, you prioritize meeting basic needs and ensuring global competitiveness. In other words, therefore, you can't just jump into global competitiveness when you haven't met basic needs. So why we have so many left-behind people, so many left-behind communities, is primarily also because of that, but also because we don't report according to rules. So one of my preferences would be that when the president reports on where we are as a country, he gives us national figures, he gives us provincial figures, he also gives us ward figures so that we know that when we're saying we're doing better, are we all doing better or some of us hopelessly left behind? Let's talk about now consequence management now that we're talking about procurement now we're talking about people being left behind now we're talking about children who are living in the stone age while others are living in the 21st century of the digital age now we're talking about poor planning give us a sense of the state of consequence management broadly speaking well when it comes to the the little officials there is a lot of consequence management and sometimes it's bad consequence management for example, we're going to punish somebody because of irregular expenditure. Irregular expenditure is twofold. Mm-hmm. There's irregular mm-hmm. expenditure because somehow you didn't follow a procedure, but you served the Gokodlaminis of this world. Then there's somebody who will have regular expenditure, but they choose priorities that are not in line with constitutional priorities, but they meet those priorities. So, yes, consequence management needs to be... Um, 
strengthened. But I would say, let's also deal with the big fish. Not enough big fish are caught in our consequence management net. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I came across officials all the time when I was a public protector to say, if I'm a police officer and I do this with a car or something small happens, they are made to pay for it and they, they often lose their jobs for the smallest of things. But a lot of the big guys, especially political, at the level of political employees of the state, it takes far too long to ensure accountability. And when that accountability is ensured, there's a sense that unless a court of law has declared you a criminal, you're good to govern. But that's unconstitutional because section one of the parts of the Constitution requires you to be a person who is capable to govern with the highest level of professional ethics. And that standard is much higher than merely saying you shouldn't be a criminal. There's a question here from Ms. Amandla Manzana who says, please ask Advocate Madonsela about the emphatically underqualified accounting officers, especially in local government, and how irrespective of what the policies might say or objectives of the policies might want to achieve, if the people yes. who are in office are not supposed to be there in the first place, it's a leaking bucket effect. Fair point. I agree with the, the questioner. That's something I said yesterday when I delivered the Bishop Tabumahopa lecture at UWC. And I did say that government appointment to government should not be a job creation scheme. It shouldn't be a reward also for political support. It should be real about putting square, square, square pegs in square holes and round pegs in round holes. If people have supported and if people need jobs, we have to think about community projects where we can put them there with their own skills. And I gave an example of China where party officials have been deployed to wards, municipal wards, given clear targets to achieve sustainable development goals. And of course, their continued employment depends entirely on them meeting specific targets. If they don't, off they go. We in but conversation. Don't put them in these very complex government jobs, like sending mm. them to parliament, appointing them as accounting officers. That's wrong. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because it attracts the wrong people to these kinds of spaces because of the low-hanging fruit. First of all, it is to get in there, but also the fact that no qualification, at certainly not a qualification that is of any merit, is required to get there. Hold that thought, Professor Madonsela. It's 2036 South Africans. We've got very little time left with Professor Advocate Madonsela, Chair, Social Justice Chair at the University of Stellenbosch and founder of the Tuma Foundation, an independent democracy, leadership and literacy, literacy social Enterprise. We're taking your calls on 0891-104-209, and she's in studio with us, taking and receiving your calls, hoping to comment to the invigorating discussions that you will generate through your calls. And from Ordendal's Rus, Eddie. Yes, my brother, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? My greetings to, to your guest, one of our own. Mm. Yes, I just want to say, you know, before uh, 1994, we... Uh, I, I don't know who said we we don't any any longer need these the legal advice centers. You know, you, you'll get it even at township level, wherever when if you have any legal problem, then you'll be able to go there. Um, maybe we need also to encourage uh, maybe if they can be through 
whatever um, resources that they have, I'm sure that will assist. But uh, I understand that we also have NGOs that are also raising issues, same as the one that were raised by your legal advice centers. I agree with her when uh, referring to that we need to be accountable and this management needs to be dealt with. You know, at municipal level, you have what you call the, the impact. But if you look at it, it's just a toothless and um, we need a copper type like even at local government level, because that's where things are happening at, at local government level. And the other thing of which I agree with her is that let's empower the state and let's do away with the with the tendering system and so on. Let's empower the state. Let's make sure that uh, the, the local government is empowered to deliver services to to to, to the people. Less ministers, lesser deputy ministers is not enough. Let's do away with provinces and save money, and that money let it be directed to local government so that people can get uh, uh, better services. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Eddie. Hold the thought, Professor Maroncella. Good evening, sir. Poverty is man-made and can be addressed by sympathetic men and women dedicated to eradicating poverty. Government in its current form will never eradicate poverty. Education is going back to the basics. That is tiling the soil. And again, this can be accomplished through land ownership. Thank you. Sizwe from the Eastern Cape. Two comments. Your response. Well, let's start with the land thing. The colleague is right that for some of our people, giving them land is going to solve the problem of poverty. But for many of them, no. I am in many rural areas where they do have land, but they have not been given implements and support on how to use that land. My father, for example, comes from a place called Akakro. They have land, but not the right support to use it. But that's not to undermines his argument that many of our communities need land. And it's not just rural land, on the urban land also, because for a business, you need premises, and the premises do need land. On the argument that um, this current government is not going to be able to end poverty, I, I disagree. I think the jury is out. I think the president and the, the DA in the Western Cape, the president for the National and the DA in the Western Cape have given us uh, an assurance that they have noticed the mistake and they are going to drive things differently. My view, and this is a view we bring in with what we call a Musa plan for social justice, is that we will only end poverty if there's collaboration among four parties. The state business, society, and the international community. We will need resources to do this. We will need better policies. We will need better skilled people to do this. We will need integrity and better government. Sure. Thank you so much. Can I just add something or just ask on the question of land. For the majority of time and for the majority of the people who are in the rural spaces and those under traditional authorities, not having access to a title deed, how does this constrain their development as a people? How does this not, al- the fact that it doesn't allow them to use a title deed for trading purposes, that sort of exacerbate what we're currently faced with? It certainly does. This is a research we did when I was still at work, and um, the 
the the the the asked us to do that with Komiso Mutana and and there are other people. I don't know what they did with that research because it was supposed to do something about liberalizing title in rural areas. People are in trust land and um if you have a corrupt chief, any day you can be kicked out of your land and your land could be sold to the highest bidder or if your father dies or your husband dies, the land gets taken away. You do need some kind of security of title whether it is ownership title or even if you don't own it directly, they say you own that land, but you own shares, but you need that title. You need a a guarantee that you will have this land for the next 100 years or or, or something like that. And I'm not sure what the the Department of Development has done to date, but that's something that is a priority and is provided for in the Constitution. When it comes to land, there's land redistribution, which is important. At the moment, rural land is 72% in one sense, and urban land is 75% in one sense. So you need the redistribution of land. You also do need liberalization of title, land title, or, or sending of people's um, title to, to land, or tenure with the title, or tenure, whatever title is done. You need that. Thirdly, you need support for those who are going to use land where they're going to use it for mining or they're going to use it for planting or they're going to use it for, for, for agriculture. They do need support to do that. And it's also not true that rural land can only be used for agriculture. In China, many factories are in rural land. If you make sure that there's infrastructure now with the days of the internet, people can set a factory and sell through the internet. In countries like China, again, support comes from the state. At break, Advocate Madonsela Morokolo in Pulukwane, we notice you and we will get back to you, but we have to take a quick ad break. We have to pay the bills. Yeah. on SAFM. We are in conversation with the Law Faculty Trust Chair for Social Justice at the University of Stellenbosch, as well as the founder of Tuma Foundation, an independent democracy leadership and literacy social enterprise. This person, who leaves very little room for any person not to know her, is a co-architect and founding chairperson of the African Ombudsman's Research Center. She's also co-founder and one of the inaugural leaders of the South African Women Lawyers Association. She has a global reputation for integrity and fearlessness in enforcing accountability and justice in the exercise of public power and use of public resources. She also has a history of highlighting the importance of social justice and general inclusive enjoyment of the fruits of democracy in the pursuit of peace. She also does not whisper truth. To power. That's the title of the book, No Longer Whispering Truth to Power. It's 2044. In conversation with Advocate Tulima Donsela, we're taking your calls on 891 WhatsApp texts, please, ladies and gentlemen, 614 And our caller from Bulugwane is Murugol. Yeah, boy, how are you? Fine, how are you, sir? I'm okay. Uh, question to, firstly, a comment and then a question to Mama Donsela. Yes. I, I, I have a serious concern when in a, car, in a single country there seems to be competition among the urban and the rural areas where you find the urban areas outshine the rural areas in performance and as a country we allow that to happen. Just to give an example, where you find housing is outshining, say, Limpopo in the sense that 
their kids are getting tablets at grade R, whereas in 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 Limpopo you have uh, learners who are studying under a, under three. I guess we all contribute to the same pool in terms of taxes. Now I want to find out from Member John Bella. Are we not creating a master and a servant uh, 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 scenario where it's like we are creating how to be the masters and, and then the people from Limpopo are going to be the servants because they will be like backwards. Should we as a country allow, for example, one province to be way ahead of another province in terms of resources and and services. Shouldn't we first say, how thing? there's no way you're going to implement tablets if in the same country there's a child who's standing under a tree or is studying in a school where there are no toilets. So what I would like to know what's the opinion of Neymar John on this. Thank you so much, Murugolo, calling us from Bulugwana. Another SMS coming through for Professor Madonsela. Hello, SAFM. Could you ask the prof, would all government employees who earn more than 20000 a month donate 200 rand a month into a trust account for youth development, or would it be too much to ask? Thank you. That is JR from the Eastern Cape. Prof. Madonsela? JR, what a marvelous suggestion. Uh, a friend of my son, his name is Sean now. Uh, he started a fund where him and his friends donate 250 rand, which they use to fund students who are left behind because they don't feel in, they don't fit into NFS. They're not too bright to get straight A's, and they're not rich, and they they hurt them. But you are right. In fact, it's a question that arose yesterday at our social justice cafe at Stellenbosch University, but it was raised after the meeting about what do we, those of us who have relatively enjoyed the fruits of democracy, what can we do to lift those who are left behind? So those who benefited during apartheid and those of us who have gotten from the greatest train, is there something that we can collectively do? And this idea of a trust fund would be just uh, uh, find a way to get hold of me and see whether we can move uh, on that idea further. We are looking at an action for inclusion fund anyway as part of our end plan for social justice. And we are looking at the possibility of when people are paying at a supermarket um, being asked to donate five rand to a, a, a national trust fund to fund social development in all of the 4,392 municipal walks. Prof. Madonsela, the advent of youth despondency certainly will tell us that whatever you say are the gains of this democratic dispensation of the last 25 years, they're all futile. A lot of them are hungry. A lot of them have got no access to education. A lot of the young people are jobless even when they have accessed this educational space. You are a framer of the Constitution. You're the one in many respects who had a vision when this Constitution was formally adopted in May 96, 8 May 96, came into operation in Feb 97. Where 
have we missed that critical mass either of human resource or planning or implementation or accountability? What is uppermost in your work that tells you whatever we had in mind in 94 when this was finally constituted to where we are now ushering in the sixth administration? Guys, get on to it. What is that? Why? Well, I think you would add a D category. And because you've given me four reasons why we are where we are 25 years into democracy, the majority of our people are left behind despite a constitution that promises to free the potential of every person and improve the quality of life of every person, not some. Despite the fact that four years ago the UN adopted sustainable development goals that say leave no one behind. So all four, you are correct. And... um where do we start now? I would say the starting point is proper planning. The second thing is, as they appoint people who are going to be driving processes, they should appoint the most capable, the least selfish, and the most trustworthy. And then thirdly, those of us in civil society, right, like the young person who spoke about the possibility of 200 rands, we also should join hands. The only way we are going to eat this big elephant or tie up this lion that is poverty and inequality is if nobody points fingers at other people. We all point fingers at ourselves and we say, I will fix the problem that I can fix. And I will join hands with others to fix those that need collaboration. You once mentioned something when I was in conference with you, being a major problem in sort of addressing South Africa's public concerns, public governance, accountability and the like. You mentioned this term, bum money. Do you want to tell South Africans what bum money is all about (laughs) and how it's a debilitating factor in our governance? (laughs) Right. Uh, okay, bum money, <laughs> for lack of a better word, I need to find a better word for it, is when somebody in public office gets given a small piece of the pie, somebody is stealing from government through a, a tender that shouldn't be there and they're overbilling, overpricing, and false billing. False billing is when they bill for something they didn't believe at all. But they made sure that somebody in authority gets a piece of it. And when then the public protector, auditor general, police, or somebody starts investigating, the person who has given a piece of the pie is approached by the thief or the looters, and then they say, hey, the public protector is trying to expose your bum. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, this person who got 1% of the loot is now going to do everything in their power to stop the investigation. Sure. And uh, because now their own bum is going to be exposed. I just wanted to say something about youth apathy or, or youth despondency. There's no such a thing as youth apathy and youth despondency. What's happening is young people are refusing to play within the system. They're not refusing to play. They're refusing to play within the system. This must fall was an example of showing that they want to play. They're inventing their own game. They're inventing their own rules. And that's a good thing. What we need to do is to fix the system so that there are entry points for them. Because when they play their own games with their own rules, it breaks them, it breaks us, 
and this threatens democracy and peace. Absolutely. Let's take a quick ad break, Professor Madonsela, before we go to the final stretch of five minutes chasing the nine o'clock news. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. On the Viewpoint. Plenty of wisdom in this house, Professor Tuli Madonsela, all of five minutes left with her here on studio. If you want to send us a message, it's 0614-104-107, the number to which you must send. Of course, that's for WhatsApp. Probably won't have enough time to take a call, but if you fancy your chances in 30 seconds, 891 My name is Songa Zumabekta. Welcome to The Viewpoint here on SAFM, leading the conversation. As we round up, Professor Madonsela, here's something that I've always wanted to know at a personal level in the context of my work in procurement. Yesterday, Chief Justice Mokhweng Mokhweng said the people must learn to govern when he was effectively taking over the candidates list for provincial and national parliament from the IEC. This takes me to an institution in the U.S. called Key Tam Relators. In a nutshell, what they are is private citizens who are operating either in the public or private sector who know for a fact of corruption that has taken place and for whatever reason the federal government refuses to prosecute and chase for that errant person as well as those funds. The equivalent would be here is a certificate nolle prosecute. Empowered by that, they become a key term relator and they are incentivized to then go what would be then a civil matter and whatever funds they recover from this corruption that they will unearth, they take a percentage out of that. Of course, now we're talking about American public procurement. We're talking about hundreds of billions of South African rands. But it is still something worth considering in this country. In the context of protected whistleblowers. That's actually in line with an article that I recently wrote. I can't remember whether it was in the Financial Mail or in the City Press. But I was asking that we should pass those laws. In some states in the U.S., they call false claims. There's two ways you can get the money back. You can you can investigate and give the matter to the prosecution, and the prosecution will give the whistleblower to the first says. And the whistleblower would not investigate themselves. The whistleblower would whistleblow to a law firm, and the law firm will quality assure this matter before handing it over to the prosecution. And then when the whistleblower gets the 25% of the state money that has been looted, she or he can then uh, give uh, some of it to the lawyers because it would have been a contingency thing arrangement. In some states, the law also then says if you investigate a matter and the prosecution refuses to investigate, you you are allowed to investigate it yourself. You are allowed to prosecute it yourself and a, a private prosecution, and you get 20% of whatever state money that was stolen. Professor Madonsela, in the remaining one or two minutes that we have, tell us about Stellenbosch, tell us about your experience there, tell us about Shope williams Legbe, Gio Quino, and your colleagues there. What's academia like versus being a public protector? Uh, academia was my first home. It's a fantastic experience working with young people who ask questions that make us think, who come up with solutions that move things forward, and working with colleagues. Um, Academia is a principle where 
answers to society or questions about society are generated. And my colleagues, uh, uh, Shaka Williams and um, and, and, and my colleague here, you know, mm. are essential for the work that I'm doing. I am working at introducing new causes. One of our causes is a, is a cause on administrative law for state functionaries. And it comes from our trustees saying we always want to catch government officials when they've done something wrong. But universities are funded by taxpayers, largely. How about we empower them to do the right thing, as some of the callers have said. So our, one of our causes will be a cause in administrative law for state functionaries. Just not complex law, law, but more about through the cases, what are the do's and don'ts in hiring people? What are the do's and don'ts in procurement? What are the do's and don'ts in, uh, in approval of committees, licenses, and things like that. We'll mm. also be doing a cause in democracy and another cause in social justice. And all of these causes are to empower those in government to do the right thing and those in business and civil society to play a role partly in capacitating government and partnering with government in moving society forward, but secondly, in accountability, because we can't rely on state institutions only. The World Bank says we should also rely on social accountability, which is me and you understanding how government works, and when things go wrong, we catch them immediately, not after the horse has bolted. Thank you so much, Professor Madonsel. Unfortunately, we have to cut it there because it's time for Greg Host with the news at nine. But indeed, that was Professor Madonsela, a person who needs no introduction, not before, not now, certainly. Thank you so much. It's nine o'clock. Greg Host.